I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Celebrate this evening, Shattered Nation. Um, Leo is Danny's editor at Verso and the author of many works of political and urban history, including Cities Are Good For You, Stones of London and Inheritance. We're immensely grateful to him for jumping in at such short notice. Uh, very good of you. Um, They'll be in conversation for about 45 minutes, following which uh, we've got the roving mic uh, for questions from the floor, following which there's time to, to buy these buy these uh, books, buy, buy multiple copies of these books if you fancy, <laughs> uh, get them signed, um, have a drink, laugh, chat and enjoy yourselves. Um, welcome, welcome. Good Thank evening. You. Good morning. Thank you very much, and, and congratulations to you all for making it here. You're all winners. Um, uh, uh, Danny, as, as, as you know, is a professor of geography at Oxford. Uh, he is, in the words of Simon Jenkins, the geographer royal by appointment to the left. Um, he's taught everywhere from Sheffield to Bristol to Newcastle. Um, uh, as well as his non-academic, um, I think, uh, sort of work, uh, giving advice, being part of brain trusts and, and thinking deeply on behalf of, of, of the left. Um, so it's really exciting to be here and to talk about his new book. I've actually known Danny for about 12 years. I have worked with him since about 2010. We worked on a book then which was about the 2001 census called So You Think You Know About Britain. Um, and in that book, Danny sort of drew a picture coming out of the census of the kind of human geography of Britain at the beginning of the 21st century. There was some glimmers of hope in oh. the book. I mean, there was uh, uh, so much that one could sort of learn about um, uh, this country. But it's fascinating to sort of look at that book. We did, I think, probably about sort of seven years later, a book called Inequality in the 1%, which the picture starts to get a little bit darker. Um, there, are, there are definitely um, uh, sort of uh, fraying some fractures. You can sort of see some fissures uh, coming through the nation, through the different sort of social classes and, and uh, through the different regions. Come 2023, we have a shattered nation. And that's really what uh, we're going to be looking at um, uh, today. I'm not here to sort of say that we're going to celebrate the shattered nation, but I think it is an urgent and a desperate call. This book is, uh, I think, um, possibly the best guide that one could have. There is so much in discussion about broken, the state of chaos. But actually, I think Danny's picked on something which is really interesting when he uses the, the phrase shattered it sort of suggests a, a fracturing into many different parts. It's not just broken down the middle, it's not split, it's not chaotic and it's not failed, it's shattered. And that means these different fragments. It also means we're exhausted, we're absolutely knackered. And uh, you know, why is that? And so this is what we're gonna try and explore um, uh, uh, over the course of the next sort of 40 minutes. So far, so cheery. Um, but, uh, you know, this is actually a book that does have some hope in it. And I hope that Danny will be able to give, mm. take some time to sort of think about not just the problems, but, you know, there's no point just coming with problems. Um, and the, the, the value of this book is it also looks very hard at solutions. It's not just a kind of uh, a sort of giveaway of uh, the usual sort of retail solutions. This is, this, is, this is hard thinking and this is things that are tangible and that we can take away with us. The book starts just outside Oxford in a place where um, uh, Danny grew up, actually. Um, it's a roundabout. Um, uh, it's probably a, a kind of place that we're all familiar with, but it's here where Danny sets the scene and really sets the argument um, uh, for the shattered nation. So I want to ask you or bring you here 
to begin with, Danny, what happens at this roundabout? At the roundabout, I have written about the roundabout quite a lot uh, in the last 20 years. Um, it isn't, uh, I, was, I could do the right on bit. I was born in Cowley, uh, grew up next to Cowley Centre, if you know Oxford, for six years. But at age six, uh, we moved. Uh, it's just inside Oxford, but not the Oxford if you went to the university, that's much smaller. It's inside the city of Oxford. And it's probably why I became a geographer, because if you see a map of the Green Road Roundabout and um, with the deprivation indices painted on it, every single colour of the rainbow is around the roundabout. I grew up in a, a location of uh, very high inequality, a poor council estate, little twee cottages, uh, the cheapest private estate where you might buy a house if you didn't want to live near black people. I won't, I'll be careful, this is some time ago. But of course, I, I was growing up in the 1970s. And so the differences between these segments around the roundabout were actually at a minimum. Uh, for the first time ever, the children around the roundabout were going to the same school. The 11 plus had gone, you know, the essential divide. It wasn't so posh that hardly anybody went to a private school. Um, and I do feel very sorry for the children who did because they were frightened. I later realised, I mean, imagine putting a blazer on and having to cycle quietly past hundreds of children going to the nearest, nearest school. So it, it was uh, a place which... You can all remember if you're my age or older. What I'm trying to do at the beginning of the book is to get you to think back to the past. For me, the memories are men cycling four abreast to the car factory, having to wait sometimes more than 10 minutes to go to cross past them, but full employment. Uh, there were differences, but the house price differences were minimal uh, back then. The Social class divides had never been lower, uh, and you can measure this in other ways, but we went into, into each other's houses, uh, which wasn't done before. There were innovations being made, particularly by committees of women. I don't say enough about this in the book, uh, but I went back recently uh, to a celebration of people who set up a play scheme in what later became... Uh, the posher part of the roundabout. And all the women who set it up were still there in their 80s and about how they made a committee and how they got the council to give them land and how they did this. And I suddenly realised you were the first women ever to actually have enough power to be able to do things like this. This was the 70s. Uh, things were changing. But then my school year was the last year where almost all the boys Majority could go straight into the car factory, 15, 16. Stopped hiring after then. Things go downhill, unemployment comes down. It sweeps down from the north uh, in the 80s. Drugs come in, herring comes in. The university is particularly snobby in the 80s, in, in hindsight. Oxford University changes over time. In the 60s, it was an all too beautiful kind of time, of a time of mixing and hippies and playing the Beatles. But for some reason in the 80s, and we can see it in the statistics of who came into the University of Oxford, we actually had an increase in private school children against the general trend. That nastiness of those teenagers, the only teenagers in the country who thought that Margaret Thatcher was a brilliant thing, were, you know, I am the age of Boris and David and Gideon, who changed his name to George, a bit younger than me. Um, you know, and there they are, throwing their wine glasses and trashing cafes it, when I'm 16. At the same time as the car factory is not taking on the men anymore. So I left Oxford and it was a much more divided place than the one I had grown up in. But what the reason for that, and I won't go on about the, is to try to get you to think back to what things were like and cut through thinking, oh, it must just be me. It must just be me remembering the good times. We did have full employment. We had the best housing system in the world at one point. I've been at a conference in Cambridge today celebrating the 60th anniversary 
of the Society of Cartographers, which means they started in 1963. So I made a very bad joke in my talk about the Society of Cartographers started between the Lady Chatterley's lover and the Beatles' first LP. <laughs> but the majority of children in 1963 had at one time in their childhoods grown up in a council house. This was the envy of the world. We had cleared the slums. We had the lowest infant mortality in the world at that point because we had the first baby incubators. Only six countries had a higher life expectancy than us. It's now 30-odd. Those six countries were also small that their total population was less uh, than the UK. Yeah. There was a point where things were progressively getting better. Sheffield had a higher life expectancy than the England average. We were level. You know, we, we were incredibly level. Regional divides were unbelievably low at this point. For a few years in the 1970s, the population centre of the country, the one you work out when you average everybody, work out where they are and draw a dot and say that's the centre, actually moved north. You know, and that rarely happens in the century. It moved south really fast in the 30s. People got on their bikes. It moved south just as fast in the 1980s. So a lot of the start of the book is about how the 70s, particularly if you're straight and male and white, the 70s were very, very good. Wages went up higher than inflation in most years. Not great if you had a lot of money because inflation ate it away, but you know, money really doesn't make you happy. Um, and trying to explain that the current set of crises are nothing like the 1970s, much more similar to the hungry 30s than to the 1970s. And your picture of the, of the sort of present day um, roundabout is, you know, pe the the obviously the the estate has now been sort of privatised and sort of sold off, and uh, it's actually too expensive now for even the uh, the lecturers and okay, the yeah. staff. Yeah. But and and then also the other houses have turned into Airbnbs. Well, there's a lot. I mean, one councillor said to me two hundred, and because I'm obsessive, but also because. Um, What's the name? That bloke who edits the Spectator. I always forget his name. Fraser Nelson. Fra Fraser's got an obsession with me and facts, so I have to fact check everything um, just to feed Fraser's obsession of trying to find an error. <clears> One <throat> councillor said there were 200 Airbnbs. I spent a long... There's a lot of Airbnbs. A lot, of course, of the council houses were right to bide, and then next generation sold to private landlords. Uh, it's private landlord um, central uh, for a lot of the area around there. The council did build, for the first time in 40 years, some council houses, but it ended up being whittled down to just 40, the rest being so-called affordable, including some penthouses that I think have gone for a million, but they're only 80% of market value. Right? So that, and that's next to the poorest segment of the roundabout. The part I grew up on, uh, a senior BBC political correspondent has moved there, says it's wonderful, can't believe it, you know. This was the cheapest houses. The, the remarkable thing, if you, it's interesting coming back to where you grew up and it having changed. In effect, what happened to Oxford was like what happened to Durham Pit Village. Uh, the pit went, the 40,000 car workers went down to three, but in came expanding two universities and hospitals. Better off associate professors with family money, bit of inheritance, and that one of the colleges that might bung them a little bit more of a housing allowance can just about buy the house that a car worker could buy in the 70s, except it's 50 years older and more dilapidated and costs a fortune. You know, there's something ridiculous going on. And there is an air of unease, sadness, anger. Children in Oxford now do not believe there was a time when there weren't homeless people in Oxford. 2018, 2019, we had the second highest homeless death rate in the country, in the city. All the overseas students are shocked, apart from the ones coming from America, who walk into Oxford and feel at home. Um, it's tense. It's tense. Somebody comes around to where you live and they immediately know how much money you've got, even though the house might have cost nothing in, in the past. Uh, people are very angry. The teachers are angry that they can only stay for a few years. Head teachers can buy. They have to live 30 minutes out of the city, but at least they can buy. The doctors and nurses, 
to John Radcliffe. How the hell do you think doctors share two to a house? Uh, you come and do your six months in the John Radcliffe, it's on your CV. You lose money on the rent. We can never staff the hospital. And that's the best paid. That's the doctors and nurses. This isn't everybody else who has to make it work. Some of them are coming in from Birmingham. You know, it, it, the mess of this city that I live in, that people live with because like that fog in the kettle, they just haven't noticed um, or they think it's inevitable. Of course, it has to be the most expensive city all the way between here and San Francisco. You know, there is no other way. There's nothing you could do. It's fine. It makes sense. Don't worry. The students will keep on coming. The old people will keep on getting ill, so the hospitals will be okay. Um, so what if you have to, as we did all our hospitals, close them for months in 2015 and 2018 because we can't actually do the routine operations anymore? So what if, even in one of the richest cities in England, you've got the trolleys going all the way back by Sunday evening to the door because what happens is the families who are managing to look after aged parents can't anymore and they, they're just wheeled in and then those those who don't die are wheeled out again and taken out. Uh, stop. So let's 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 dig into the book. Let's get beyond sort, yes. of, uh, sort of Oxford. I mean, uh, uh, it's it's a good moment to sort of go back to the original sort of ideas of William Beveridge, which now seems uh, you know almost a, a different sort of country. But in his in his iconic nineteen forties book, he created this sort of image of of five uh, giants, which which. The welfare state, as it as it was to become, needed to uh, conquer, and they were idleness, ignorance, disease, squalor, and want. Now, Danny, you've updated these; um, you've slightly adapted them, um, but they are, in some ways, uh, uh, the thing to note is actually that the the giants have returned. It's not that they've sort of changed their names, mm. but the names that you give them are, are hunger, precarity, waste, exploitation, and fear. Um, I think we should just uh, uh, introduce uh, these uh, in particular. Let's, if we start off with with hunger, which I mean, obviously you uh, you it, it's sort of clear what 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 hunger is, but you also sort of see this through the lens of a, the sort of disunited or the shattering of the kingdom and yeah. uh, the sort of four nations, and in particular, uh, you know, why uh, has it shattered so much? And can we all be Scotland, really? Yeah. Okay. It's a lot. Um, uh, one remarkable thing is that there are still people who don't believe that things are bad. Um, and there is a way in which things don't change. William Beveridge um, got the names of two of them from a story by Dickens. I think it was Want and Ignorance were two of the children, possibly in A Christmas Carol. Um, and, of course, the child called Want was hungry. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the early 2000s doing detailed statistical research about the record of new labour, saying it wasn't quite as good, but it was hard work. Um, yeah, because uh, some things were getting better, some were getting worse. Now the Resolution Foundation simply produces chart after chart about how bad things are. It's a Resolution Foundation report from early this year that revealed that the majority of children with two or more siblings in the UK, 56% of them, give or take a confidence limit, but it's still the majority, are going hungry two or three times a month. Their mistake was to have a brother and a sister, because that means three. And because you don't get child benefit for the third one, that tips the average UK family with three or more children into absolute, actual hunger. Um, or more concrete things. You know, I do a lot about mortality statistics because it's concrete. That The stuff that's come out recently about the heights of our children, when they began to start to stunt at age five or ten, and the stunting just begins in the new labour years and then gets worse. Our children are still going up slightly, but nothing like the normal height increases on children uh, on the continent. So this is bad nutrition, not enough nutrition. Literally having to choose between heating or eating uh, and what you do. And the shattered part of this is we are 
now very close to being more unequal than Bulgaria, which means we're the most unequal country in Europe by income. 10% of us, two of us sitting here, quite a lot of you, 10% of us take 40% of all income. We leave 60% to the other 90% of society. Right? It, it doesn't take that much math to work out why people haven't got money uh, for food. But because we're so shattered, we often don't believe it. And because we're so shattered, we don't tell the story of Scotland. When I started doing this work, we used to regularly go to Glasgow 20, 25 years ago to Shettleston in particular, the poorest constituency in Britain, one of the poorest parts of Europe. You'd have to go to parts of Eastern Europe to find equivalents to Glasgow. Child poverty was worse then. The child poverty rate for the last 10 years in Scotland has been lower than every region of England. Right? Child poverty rate in Scotland is lower than the southeast of England, and that excludes London. Surrey almost went bankrupt. The government quietly bailed out Surrey. They can't bail out Birmingham. They can't bail out the other 20. And they can't bail the other 25 to come. But you have more poverty amongst children in Surrey than you have across the whole of Scotland because of things that have happened in Scotland. And that's before the latest thing, which we really are trying to get people to talk about. When the cost of living crisis hit, which tips everything over because you're so fragile before it, when the food prices rise by 18%, because they went up faster than general inflation, uh, Nicola Sturgeon instigated COBRA, the Scottish version of COBRA. They met every week, exactly as they did during the pandemic. I mean, far more people die from austerity than the pandemic. Uh, and one of the things they decided to do, apart from looking at landlords and rents, was to introduce the Scottish child payment on top of child benefit. And in Scotland, of course, because they don't have what they call the rape clause, which is what they call the, if you can prove you've been raped in England, you will get child benefit for the third child if you, if you can prove that that child was a product of rape. So in Scotland, this is called the rape clause. Um, in Scotland, you automatically get child benefit from the third, fourth, you know, hardly anybody has five children. They introduced a special extra Scottish child payment Originally, it was £10 for children under six, right? But this is how you do it with policy, some policies. You get the principal in first. Tony Blair did it with, you know, £1,000 student fees. You know, easy. Of course, you could pay 1000 Once you got it in, you can ramp it. In November of last year, it's very recent, Scotland increased it to £25 a week for every child aged under 16 in any family receiving any form of benefit. That's two out of seven of all children in Scotland. If you're a family with three children in Scotland receiving any kind of benefit, that's an extra £4,000 a year. What that means is that by this Christmas, no child in Scotland goes cold or hungry. I do a long version of this for university students where I describe these policies and then I'd ask them to guess which country in Europe does it. And they normally start off with Sweden or Norway. Then they go to the Netherlands, then they go to Finland, then they, you know, they guess at Iceland because they're clutching at straws. On average, university students at Russell Group Universities, when I'm doing a guest lecture, go through 10 European countries before they finally hit on Scotland as the place that is doing this. Um, and Westminster hates it. Gordon Brown wrote an article in The Scotsman last month saying it was not necessarily responsible. <laughs> Eliminating child poverty. It's not very expensive. It does cost a bit. Uh, it's incredibly effective. It's one of the many things you can do when you're in this situation. Uh, and the fact that we don't even talk about it in England, the fact that we don't even know about it, um, is I just I just think it's quite remarkable uh, that this. And it's not particular. It's a bipartisan policy in Scotland. Occasionally, Labour in Scotland want to have a go about it, but realise it's going to be a really, really bad look. And what's happening in Scotland, they're allowed to raise a little bit more tax, but hardly any. So they've had to make a tough choice of they are going to save the children, not the old people going cold, not other people, not, but at least don't have a stunted generation, literally stunted uh, by height. And that's happening now. So we have different beliefs and different morality within the UK about just what is right. South of the border, how many weeks ago was it that the 
Labour Party goes, oh, no, we're going to keep the two-child limit, what's called the rape clause in Scotland, because that's responsible. I mean, it comes to something. And there's your shattering, you know, that a party originally, yeah, says that that's fine. It is, these things are actually shocking. You get used to them. But each one, when you think about it a bit carefully, is shocking. It is shocking that the majority of those children are going hungry. It is shocking that there are only five Eastern European countries that have a lower neonatal mortality rate than we do, that we do worse than the majority of Eastern Europe now, that more... This is definitely Flanders, right? This, in a way, my job is so easy. You know, it's definitely Flanders now on Bloomsburg, reading out a stat that John Byrne Murdoch produced for the FT, that the average income, standard of living of the poorest fifth of people in the UK is now lower than the average for the poorest fifth of Eastern Europe, Europe combined. We are poorer than Eastern Europe. Um, but because you're shattered, because we are here in this street, you know, because you, you're not having to work second jobs, not all of you, tonight, you're not a teacher who's working in a pub, because that's how teachers manage to survive, is you work in the pub after you teach. It's, and, and that's partly how it can happen, because you, it, can carry, it can carry on for some time, partly because there's just a disbelief that this can be true. Uh, and then, when it's shown to be true, people accept it, it becomes seen as normal, and then a little bit of a giveaway, some special cold winter payment, isn't that nice? Um, Whereas you step back, you think about what's happened over the course of your life, or you simply compare to any other European country apart from Ukraine, right? Um, just being statistical about it. And nowhere else has had this fall, this falling down the ranks. Um, and can I, can I uh, pick, uh, go back to that image of the... Uh... The teacher who's uh, working in the pub, and uh, sort of pick up on uh, another of of the giants that you talk about, which is which is waste. And you use this giant as a way to sort of think about about employment and unemployment and, and productivity, and in in particular, sort of you know the sort of uh, the sort of the crap jobs that are just everywhere. Um, uh, we, we seem to be wasting our time doing less than pretty much anywhere else. We're, in we're, Europe. Well, we're less productive and have longer hours and more jobs. And of course we're less productive because you don't want to be doing these jobs. Um, <laughs> and lots of them are not particularly socially useful. I mean, our success stories, I do have a real go at the success stories. Uh, I don't want to be sound too cynical. Let's go through them in most cynical forward. Most cynical, and this is quite remarkable, is we are now the world leader in online gambling. Uh, we, we process more online gambling than the whole of the USA. And that's not Gibraltar, that's us. Um, and it's a big export earner, partly because of Gordon Brown bringing the tax down to near, near, near zero. So there is a kind of plague on both your houses thing in this book, by the way. Um, you know, people accuse me of being partisan, but I just go at everybody. Uh, over over it. Well, and particularly the left, because if you look at what what did other European countries do, they had a more robust left wing at various points. You know, you can blame Thatcher, but we have to ask what were the circumstances that allowed her A to get in, but B to be tolerated. Why did the left in Britain split in the way it did with the SDP? Why didn't it reform? Why did she? win the hearts and minds so that when she was asked what her greatest achievement was, she could say, my greatest achievement is Tony Blair. Um, you know, it, you, can, you can have a go at both times. The, the lack of productivity um, is because we have forced so many people to do jobs they do not want to do and things that are not necessary. We have the lowest unemployment benefit in all of Europe for people of working age. You're sanctioned. You have to take work, any work, hence enormous amounts of prostitution in London. Um, and that's, again, what happens in a time of incredibly high inequality. It's what Charles Booth found when doing the surveys of London, which he did, and this is when you do really good social science, Booth didn't believe there was much poverty, which is why he did those surveys of London and then found there was so much. 
but inequality results in lots of people, poorer people doing things for a few rich people who have the money. The delivery bikes. We have a new class of servants where people doing things for us. They might not live in our houses yet, although we do have more people living in, but they're doing things just because it's the whim of somebody else for whom money isn't a problem, who do not know what their heating bill is. There might be an issue about the school bills and which school bill you could possibly afford, and that might be questionable. And cost of living crisis affects everybody, so being slightly cynical, one skiing trip, not two. 40% of children don't have no summer holiday. Haven't for uh, no holiday at all. Holiday is seven days away from your home, not staying with family or friends. For, holidays are going. That Victorian thing we won is going. We now have increasing number of families saying they don't need a holiday. Not just that they can't have one. Why would you want to do that? And for the better off, because we're so unequal, you're talking four, five, six holidays. Some of which aren't really proper holidays, are they? You know, it's just it's only five days and it was Ryanair. Um, <laughs> social class ABC makes up the majority of passengers on Ryanair, EasyJet, all those budget flights, Jet 2, you know, when you are looking around going, hmm, these aren't me and my kind of people. Oh, they are, you know, because <laughs> we have the data. Because um, the poor don't fly, because the poor can't eat, right? And uh, the next one is, is, is in some ways sort of connected to that, which is, which is fear which mm. is in some ways the sort of the last giant that you sort of encounter. And this is, this is one that's come about very much as a result of the sort of pandemic. I think you sort of see yeah. it through the lens of that. But it also is the sort of this growing fear that, you know, despite the fact that, you know, there, these jobs exist and uh, the infrastructure is shattering, we're frightened. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so do you want to sort of, you know, how, how was the sort of pandemic? How much did that have an impact? On the on that, nation. On, well, I shouldn't laugh, but there is, I don't have any graphs in this book, partly because if you were to flick through it with the graphs that could be in it, you might think I'd cherry pick them to all be doing this. Um, I put 150 graphs on the website, so they're there. Two of the graphs I would have included are, are the anxiety and happiness indices, the official ones. Do you remember when David Cameron announced that he was going to make ONS produce a happiness measure? And he was going to increase it. Well, they did. Right? They, they, they spent ages. They carefully designed it. Um, and I think it was about 2012, 2013, it began to be measured uh, quite regularly. Uh, anxiety is a standard set of mental health questions about anxiety. And it actually began to get a bit better. And the reason it got better was that we were getting further away from 2008, further away from that housing market crash, all ending, banks. Uh, so it rose a little bit. And then you might have thought that the referendum of 2016 would harm it. But actually, our anxiety levels fell then. We, people are taking more antidepressants. The serious stuff is getting worse. But our overall levels didn't fall. And they didn't fall, I think, partly. This is speculation and hard to prove, but those people who voted leave got their 52%. They were getting what they had wanted. Their children would be able to get a house because we were going to stop the immigrants or whatever else you think was going on. Um, we would be taking back control. Our fishing fleets would be working again. And it was a good time if you, if you were part of the majority of voted leave. If you're part of the group who didn't vote to leave, well, you had all these politicians who were going to reverse this. At the same time, if you're on the left, something quite amazing happened in 2015. Half a million people joined a political party, and we had a politician whose politics were the same as Merkel, you know, which we call extreme left wing, which in Europe is called conservative social democratic <laughs> uh, policies. Half a million, the biggest social movement in Europe. And you can see it in the anxiety statistics. That crashed down between the summer of 2019 and the autumn. This absolute fall in confidence and sadness. I mean, it is shocking. And that was the election of Boris Johnson with a landslide majority. Um, 
And, and the reason I laugh about the, the pandemic wasn't as bad as Johnson being elected for the mental health of the nation by the measure that David Cameron uh, had introduced. But this is, but underneath that, in terms of, of people getting the prescriptions for the antidepressants, up and up and up and up again. The pandemic, we weren't all in it together. We didn't pull together. That's all myths. Uh, the number of putrefied bodies, which is one of the many things I follow. This is bodies where you can't give a cause of death on the death certificate because the body's so dissolved. Of course, there was a, it was going up anyway, and it's very high, but it went up usually during the pandemic because we were scared of each other, right? You, you know, you might think you helped out your neighbours, and there was some of that, but there was much more not actually helping out the neighbours than before. The pandemic was terrifying. Most people don't think, like, most people don't work with mortality statistics and think all the time about dying, right? It was, you can remember this, or you try and forget it, but it, it was a terrifying thing, but it was universal. It happens everywhere, but we dealt with it badly. We dealt with it worse. We had an already completely fractured health and social security system uh, before it hit, and it just added to the angst and, and the fear. I'm particularly interested in concern amongst people in my group, in the top 10%. Um, the ones who, where the school fees are a problem, who cannot envisage their children going to school with other people because that dramatically increases the chances that their children might not be in the top 10% in future. And if you live in a country where the top 10% are taking 40% of everything, and your child drops out, suppose they fall in love with somebody who isn't from your social group, right? Think about the effects of that. So, and in London, you're talking 25% private. In Oxford, at age 15, it is 30%. It really matters to segregate your children. The rest of Europe doesn't do this. That doesn't, doesn't do it. Um, there's that. There's how on earth do you get the free bed house in Fulham, which requires inheritance from sets of grandparents that you've got to really get on with. And again, <laughs> marrying the right person. Um, there's securing the right career. There's making sure your children go to the right university and oh no, they're increasing social mobility. And this is truly awful. There's securing those jobs in London that will quickly get them up to that particular bracket in a country falling apart. The fear of falling is bigger and bigger and bigger. I did a talk at Wellington School where the festival education is. And I think I can say this because it's anonymous enough and this has happened to me before. A mother of a child comes up and says, son's there, not with us, says he doesn't know we've sold the house. We're not going to make any money from selling the house. It will just clear the debts. We can pay his fees. He's still going to go. And there's nothing left. And I can see her shaking. And this is somebody incredibly well off. And we don't talk about things like this. Stiff upper lip. You know, it's a bit, you know, talking about it's a bit wrong, isn't it? The fact it exists, the fact that really well off people are very, very frightened. In other European countries, the best off 10% are much calmer much happier. They don't take as much. They have better lives. Uh, and we've just moved to this extreme, which we think of as, as normal, which creates a paranoia amongst the well-off, which is what I, you know, one of the many ways in which I turned to, to hope. Yes, so but, let's, 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 yeah. let's, let's turn to, let's turn to <laughs> yes, that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's all fine. It's all going to be okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, 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 there are some problems here, Danny. Um, but uh, but you know, I think what 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 you're very clear about is is you know one of the problems of being in the sort of shattered nation is we just don't look up and we don't look out and we think that there are absolutely no alternatives and that's part of that sort of rigidity, that fear that we have now completely yeah. kind of sort of turned in on ourselves. But you quite rightly sort of say. There, it's happening. It's out there. You know, if we just thought about it hard, if we just looked a little yeah. bit further. Or even not that hard, but, but as you become more fearful, you shut down the alternatives. 
you know, the idea of having a manifesto which suggests that you will increase public spending over five years to the level of Germany um, becomes terrifying because you can no longer pay the fees for North London Collegiate if that happens. Um, but the world does not end if you can no longer pay the fees for North London Collegiate, if you know where it is. If, if we were, it's like the 1980s, where the best of 30% of people doubled over 10 years their real income. They were really rewarded for voting conservative. You know, they, they, they didn't face any chance of unemployment. They weren't part of the three or four million. You could have a solid block voting for you. And as long as just before elections you got to the top of the polls, that's fine. In between elections, you could Labour could be 20% ahead. Fine. We're kind of back in the 80s. Um, this time, the number of people actually winning out is really, really small. And that's good news. That levels of happiness and contentment amongst the 10% is really low. And that is good news. We have how many hundred schools? I don't know. You know, the question is how many more schools between now and Christmas will be discovered that at any moment the roof of the assembly hall might go down? Right? This looks like a huge problem. But we have more school buildings per head in this country than anywhere else in Europe. It's just that quite a lot of them are fairly empty with lots and lots of teachers in and nice gothic pillars and some posh grass outside. But they're there. We have buildings if we need to educate them. In London, I've repeatedly said since the 2001 census, we have more bedrooms than people if nobody even wanted to share a bed with anybody else. Right? And that has gone up 2001, 2011, the 2021 census, even more empty bedrooms in the capital uh, than before. So you, this whole stuff of, when I first worked as a researcher at the age of 23 for the Roundview Foundation, 22 years ago, the policy was 300,000 homes a year we just need to build. <laughs> there comes the point where you go, oh, for God's sake, stop saying we need to build 300,000 a year. We've been building extensions, we've been doing all kinds of things, we actually, and we haven't been having that many children. Um, it, the existing resources that we have, which we're so wasteful of, are there which could be used to deal. We, in the pandemic, rather than bailing out the private hospitals, which is what we did, they would have gone, they would have gone bust in the pandemic. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't operate. You know, you can't really do plastic surgery when you're told, you know, it's stay home and do it by Zoom. Right? But instead of incorporating those hospitals that we should have, we bailed them out to keep the private sector going in the health service. Um, but the, there's a lot of infrastructure uh, which is there. It, the ethos is absolutely that, oh, you can't possibly do these kind of things. But we've done some. Last year, further education colleges, which were private, they were all nationalised on one day. It wasn't reported. Uh, the way it officially happened, I mean, it happened because they're going out of control, they're going bankrupt, it's not working. The official reason was that the Office of National Statistics had decided that the amount of money that further education colleges were getting from government meant that they really couldn't be put on the public accounts as being a private industry anymore. This was part of the state. And if we follow the proper international accounting rules, we have to declare them as part of the state. A letter from the Secretary of State is sent round on exactly the same day as ONS announced this, telling all further education colleges that they can no longer borrow any money, do anything, they are now part of the Department for Education. What isn't said, and I wish somebody would publicly say it, is that the unwritten rule is, and nobody can be paid more than the Prime Minister. Because once you're nationalised, that's the rule. Uh, 150,000 uh, odd, which is a bit of a shock to a number of further education heads who have been Right, but that's the waste. Housing associations is even bigger. We have so many thousands, such high pay. It's tricky to nationalise them. We'll, we'll let the black mould get worse and worse and worse. Because if we were to do the same thing, if ONS were to decide completely objectively, with no political interference at all, that housing associations clearly are part of the state, given that almost all the money is coming from government and trying to pretend they're not is wrong, our public debt would then rise so massively that those international bankers still willing to lend us money 
They prefer Italy now to us. We're the worst bet in Europe. That's why the interest rates are so high. We begin to look worse. So we're playing a balancing act. The, the, the thing that most shocked me was on the day that BMW in Oxford were bunged 75 million to not leave for China or the Czech Republic. So we still had the electric mini. They only they promised to keep the petrol mini going to 2030, and then that was the end of the car plant. One percent of our export earnings is that car plant in Oxford. One thousand two hundred beautiful robots make make those cars. Car every one minute two seconds. Uh, so it's a very good thing. Worth 75 million as a bung. On the same day, the government cut the social security budget of the country by 150 million, not because they were that callous, but because they needed to send a message to those people watching government spending, as we're not going to increase taxes more, that we were still being responsible. The money has run out. We can't, those people who say, oh, we're sovereign, we own sterling, we can print it. We could print as much as we like, but we have to have food. And that comes in. Most of that's imported. So the options are being shut down and down and down. Yeah. The, the options for worrying about the roofs of universities, worrying about because we squandered the, when the incomes went up to £9,000 per student, it was supposed to be a market. Of course, you all go to £9,000 because otherwise people might think your university isn't very good if it's six or five or four. Bonanza, when that first came in, now fixed. Inflation at 10%, heating bills going up, number of students who've gone to university, today's news has gone down. How on earth are you going to pay the heating bills, let alone pay the staff? Um, Birmingham's gone bust. They've got to sell off fast to pay wages by Christmas but you're no longer shocked. In the book, I've got Slough going under. Um, all the libraries, everything has to go. You were supposed to be coming up with solutions here, Danny. I mean, <laughs> well, but, I, but I, I'm going to I'm going to have to I'm going to yeah. stop you here. I think it's time to um, open up to the floor. I don't know if there is a roving mic or anything like that. Hello. Um, OK, so if anybody has got a question um, for Danny, I've got one at the front here and one over here. Should we take a couple of questions together? As you, yeah, you... two. I can do two. Okay. I can't remember three. <laughs> Hi. Um, my question might have two bits of it. Sorry. Um, oh. Right. The 70s. I was I was at Oxford in the 70s and I was at St Hilda's, which was the last college before you hit the Gallery Road. So yeah. I do know what you're talking about, the roundabout. Two things happened in the 70s or just after the 70s. One was we joined the, the EEC. And the other was that the Soviet Union went down the plug hole. And isn't it that those two things, ideologically speaking, is what killed the left rather than anything else? Because if either of those things hadn't happened, that is, we hadn't joined the EC or the Soviet Union hadn't gone down the plug hole, we would not be where we are now. Okay. Thank you. And I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts on how much misinformation has driven this divide and uh, not helped fixing problems. And I'm not talking conspiracy theories, yeah. but I'm talking when you survey people about, for example, immigrants in the UK, the numbers that people believe are much more inflated and their belief in illegal immigrants or uh, people on benefits and the belief of how much people on benefits actually earn, how easy it is to get benefits, which if yeah, I'm telling grandma how to suck eggs, actually what people believe is, is yeah. nothing like reality. And this goes across all sorts of things. So just um, your view on how, I'm not going to ask for answers, but how much is that actually driving this kind of disintegration, so to yeah. speak, of understanding of what the problem okay. is and how to fix it? You've, got, you've got those two. I've got those two. Yeah. I'll, I'll, do yours, I'll do yours first and then, then I'll do the 70s. It's very hard to measure. I'd love to, I like measuring things because people don't. Um, but I think misinformation uh, reduced in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Uh, I always use Bryce Head Revisited for the 20s. And if you just read it, like those young men who are talking about the terrible working class truly believed that they were. Um, William Beveridge, and particularly his brother-in-law, Tawny. Um, yeah, Tawny was for a day in a shell hole in the Somme. Uh, that gets you to meet other men and you work out, despite the fact you went to boarding school with Beveridge, these, these lower orders who you think of as the gardeners, 
you know, are human. And misinformation reduced in the 20s and 30s and 40s, and particularly by the 50s and 60s, where in, you know, St Hilda's was, I think, then even majority grammar school girls. They were dating largely private school boys, but that was changing as well. Um, you know, and it, it was all too beautiful in Oxford uh, time. The misinformation, I think, increases. I'd love to measure it, but my favourite example is Jeremy Hunt. And Jeremy Hunt's statement in the budget, which I, I must memorise this, but goes something like, Britain is and always has been a force for good in the world. Now, Jeremy absolutely believed that. He said it with gusto. I think he'd written it in. He was taught that at his school. He was taught that by his tutors, which I'm sure are Oxford. I've not memorised his college. His friends confirmed it in his 20s and his 30s. There are these terrible people who don't believe in this wonderful... The degree of ignorance across our society and its increase um, compared to what people in more equal countries know about their history and, and so on is, is terrible. And that's partly how you sustain this. You know, how do you end up being this unequal? Well, partly because there are a set of people at the top who believe if we just try a bit harder, then we can be the richest country per capita by the year 2030. That's George Osborne's promise of 2015. Or take Boris's resignation speech, slightly watered down but similar, or take Keir Starmer's speech from a few months ago, elect me and we'll have the highest growth rate of any of the G7, right? The same, very, very similar promises because we can then take our rightful place back in the world at the top where eugenically we were born to be if we're just unleashed, you know, and it's ignorance. It's a stupid thing. There's nothing special about England that means we should be up there. It would be lovely to be an average European country. We have no idea how good it would be. You know, imagine your children going to school with other children and not worrying about it. Imagine no school uniforms, unless you're in Malta and Ireland, the two ex-colonies. Um, this doesn't happen. Imagine trams everywhere. Everyone, apart from the poorest, Leon, of Oxford's twin cities have the most amazing tram systems to do. So, so misinformation, but absolutely across the board, and it grows in a similar way to the US. And in a way you do not see in the most equitable of European countries where what people know is much more similar to each other. It's not that there aren't divides, but it's quite hard to spot them. Uh, the Soviet Union and joining. The most equal countries in the world are all members of the EU. Finland is the, is the, the extreme one. So, so joining the EEC doesn't... You could have made an argument, people did, Tony, Tony Benn did, to say that as we were the second most equal country in Europe then to Sweden, we didn't necessarily have to join this rich person's club. We could have actually become even more progressive. It was a bit fanciful. I call it new left review books thinking. Uh, was it Perry Anderson who I won't, There's a lovely article in 1968 about, in the LRB, about how terrible inequality in Britain is. And whoever wrote it had no idea that was the best year ever. They were just saying how bad it was. And okay, it was a bit unequal, but we were more equal than anywhere else in Europe and more equal than we'd ever been in history. And the problem is, if you've got your far intellectual left still saying this is terrible, you know, you lose. And that's why I say we have a problem with our left, because they, they, they just didn't have a grasp on, on reality. And Russia, the Soviet Union falling apart again. All those countries in Europe in which inequality has fallen in the majority of countries in Europe in the last 10 years. But they didn't have our particular Soviet dreams of our posh left-wing intellectuals. You know, it was more pragmatic. They, politicians are more likely to come from normal backgrounds. Uh, but it's hard to blame these external things. What you can blame is losing the empire. We lost, we'd already lost India, which was the big one, but we were still losing throughout the 70s, the last parts. And I've got to break it to you, we weren't doing them a service. It wasn't costing us lots of money having an empire. We were at the middle of it, and we were doing very, very well out of it. When I first went to France, I was 15. My mum gave me a pound. You've heard this before. 
Um, a pound would get you 10 francs. Three francs gets you a bottle of wine. I had three bottles of red wine as a 15-year-old. <laughs> but but we, and, we were so rich compared to mainland Europe when I was 15, and it's, it's losing the empire. So our crashing down was faster than any other country. And it's the Monday club and the dealing with that and the shock of, you know, your granddad is running Nigeria and you might not get, even get a bottom level job in a foreign and Commonwealth office. You know, we have to get back to our rightful place again. Uh, and I do think you can use that to excuse a, an awful lot of this about why was it us? Because there was something, you know, our empire was bigger than all the other empires uh, of the time put, put together. So it's a crash down, especially shocking for people at the top. Wanted a way out, sick man of Europe. Uh, but, and but, and but, the Labour Party was an imperial party as well. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think they supported the empire all the way to, to, to its end. Um, and the empire helped pay for the welfare state. Um, you know, it, it was possible to do it because of the income coming in. Yeah. Are there, is there another round of questions? I think we've got time for, for one more. We've got two here, three. Um, and here, can we start at, start at the back and then move forward? I'm, I'm, I think we have... I'll be quick answers, I promise. Okay, we've got, we've, we've got about five minutes, so let's try and get as many questions as possible. You mentioned a few times we don't talk about this very much and and I agree with you, we don't. And I, I've just come back from a few years living on a small island in Scotland and uh, very interesting what you said about Scotland and there's and you're right, the SNP has an energy and the ideas are, are there and people do actually talk about stuff. Um, and I'm wondering what you what where you think the future of that is where we can we can talk honestly and share our lives more honestly. Um, there's a bit of community organising, there's unions I've worked with, um, churches, mosques, temples, you know, where people gather together in a room. Uh, how do we, how can we have those honest conversations? It's not, I, 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 I'm, I'm looking for that. And I think there were two in that road together and then one final one just in the second row there. Um, I, I bought the book, but haven't read it. Shattered as an, a verb or as an adjective, remarkably strong. I think the interviewer was going to ask you about hope. Mm. Uh, hope requires organisation, analysis, not just mitigations by, by, by very nice people like ourselves here. Mm. Where are the shards of hope and how might they come together? Great. Mm. My question, I think, can follow on nicely from that because you've mentioned fear, anxiety, and I'd add despair. I've been a campaigner for the NHS for over 10 years now, a mixture of some successes, but largely a lot of, and, and I'm talking about the public that we meet regularly, of uh, anxiety and despair. The NHS, of course, is under huge threat from the Tories, but the Labour Party is not exactly offering any hope. We are in a situation where we have first passed the post for our political system and on the streets what we are hearing from people is, but what do we do? Where can we go? So if we can return to the chair's question, which he didn't get to ask, what do we do? Where can we go? I think one last question here and saying, I, I think I can see a theme coming here. We might yeah. end on a, on, on a oh, high note, on a positive note, maybe. This one might be slightly off theme, but <laughs> uh, Danny, at, at the beginning, you said it was understandable that the Labour's, uh, the, the unions in the 1970s were defending workers' rights because oh. those workers' rights were under attack from a Labour government. Uh, I see it a rather different way. If in place of strife had gone through, if the unions had not fought against healing Callaghan, we might not have got Thatcher. Uh, and I spent a number of years running uh, summer schools for Scandinavian trade unionists. I've met German trade unionists, and they started off by being quite impressed by our, our unions. They left absolutely horrified by how incompetent and underfunded and uh, mindless, really, our trade unions were. Uh, 
what's the union, what was the union's role then? What might the union's role be now? And if I can just throw in a completely facetious extra question, is your cover uh, inspired by Dominic Cummings? <laughs> um, the, the, the cover was chosen by Leo, so he can explain the cover. I'll leave, I'll leave that there. Uh, but hope. Hope, organisation, and not relying on old structures, I think. Yep, there were signs of hope. Uh, and I published. So one of the strongest signs of hope is that for the first time for 50 years, we are seeing a whole series of progressive pay deals. And this is what happened in the 30s in particular. Uh, I've gone through every pay deal that's published and the private ones that you can get. A simple example is the Communication Workers Union, which is BT. Uh, four years ago, it was a 3% flat. Everybody got 3%, which, of course, the highest worker gets most. Lowest year, 3% of a low salary is much less. Uh, the latest deal that that union has got is the most complicated tiered deal. Civil servants, since 2008, top-level civil servants have had a 25% real cut in their wage. Lowest level civil servants, a 12% cut. Now, bad news, but it's narrowing. For the first time in 40 years, all the pay deals are narrowing, and the benefits have gone up by more in percentage terms than the pay. Um, now, that has to carry on and on, but it's happened, it's happened because we've run out of money. And when you run out of money, you actually realise that your lowest paid workers are going to starve. They have to have a bigger increase. Wealth is begun with. Your house is now worth much less than it was worth a year ago in real terms because of inflation, let alone if you're in London, it's actually gone down. There's no sign of that reducing. The rents are really high because the landlords are desperately trying to not sell because they're having to pay the buy-to-let mortgages. But we're getting a reduction in wealth inequality for the first time in decades. Pensions are actually falling even more in their value, according to the Resolution Foundation, than and this is private pensions. So most wealth in Britain is housing wealth, which only a third are going to end up with, and private pensions. And we're beginning to come together. Uh, so there are the, but if it is if it is like the past, it isn't a sudden happy. Oh look, we're becoming more equal. It's a desperate period of how on earth do we cope with with this. What we could do, though, is look and realise that is what happened last time. We don't have to go through 20 years of, of this. Um, we could do it more quickly, not have the pain for so long. We could look at other countries and what they do uh, and do it better. And we could talk more openly about what's not going right in our lives, which is partly how you get away with this. Because in this country, it is very useful to be a social statistician because people in the privacy of filling in the online survey will click, I am not sleeping, I cannot pay this bill, and whatever. But because we don't, you know, it's not just that we don't riot and strike like the French. We don't, between ourselves, talk about this stuff, uh, particularly the stiff upper-lipped middle class. You know, it, it's carry on. And that can lead people to thinking, oh, this isn't that bad. You know, just get through it. I don't know anybody who's suffering. You know, there will be 20, 25 people in this room who have got a relative who has been homeless. You very likely never told your friends about it. Uh, with the stats, I can go through and tell you, and it's a bit depressing, but just a little bit more honesty about the worries and so on, to not have this complacency of, well, if Labour get in and they do a slightly better job of being even more prudently conservative than the Conservatives, you know, it'll be okay, won't it? And um, they might do a nice little special cold winter benefit if the food prices go up. You know, just a bit more, it isn't good enough. There it is, I got my answer. Yeah, <laughs> and it's partly, it's partly what that Brexit vote was about. That Brexit vote was people voting, mainly elderly people, for their grandchildren to have the kind of future they had when they were young. 
when you could pick the job you wanted, when there was not unemployment, that's the 50s and 60s, when you could start a family if you wanted to in your 20s, when you could get a house and keep it, when there were schools you could go to and you didn't worry about what school, and when the health service, like it is in most of the rich world, apart from the US, was actually getting better each year, right? We give people one vote in their lifetime. Well, two, because they were old enough to get the vote in that one in the 1970s. That actually matters in an electoral system where 90% of people's vote doesn't matter. And the majority of people vote for something other than this. That's why you got Brexit. It wasn't just racism. It was a desperate cry for help uh, because the old could see that their grown-up children were struggling and cannot see a future for their children. I'll end on, this country is full of really well-off people who've sent their children to very expensive schools who are now in their 20s and not doing very well and they don't want to talk about it. Um, and that's what I see again and again. And you have to get to a point of saying it isn't working for the very well off. We've got to share around a bit more. We're going to have to reduce the number of holidays that the very well off have. We're going to have to reduce the amount of houses that those of us who own more than one have. We're going to have to encourage people to downsize because we're not going to be able to build because we can't afford the concrete. Right? We're going to have to share out the school resources and the teachers. We can't have what is very possibly, I can't prove it, a majority of geography teachers in Britain teaching in the private sector for 7% of our children. Right? It's a bit of a waste. It will get you the A star. You know, what does the A star mean? We can't have so many of our doctors and nurses working in this ever-expanding private health sector. We can't have Kensington and Chelsea being a state apart. It's too, we haven't got enough money for all these things anymore. And it's not normal in Europe to have a separate concierge level so that you can live separated from the rest of society while you watch the candles appear in people's windows and the heating being turned off at winter, right? That has to end. And Scotland is showing how it can be done. And what do we do? We go, oh, where did you get the money for that camper van? Which is what they did to Nicola. That camper van. Compare that camper van, which nobody knows who paid for it in Scotland, to the PPE saga, to the billions of corruption in England. One camper van in Scotland? and ask what's really going on with the press in Westminster? How scared are they? Do they really see the SNP as the enemy within that could destroy our chances of Empire 2.0? You know, what kind of madness is this? Because we've already got solutions being enacted. You can do rent regulation. There's all kinds of, you can have students going to university without paying fees. It is happening inside the UK already, right? It's there. That's why I'm hopeful. So I'm not having to sit in front of you and say, wouldn't it be good if we did this and this and this? Some of us are doing it inside the UK. I'm going to stop you there. Yeah. I think, I think that's, uh, I mean, you know, in talking about the sort of uh, the power of honest talk, um, I really want to say, Danny, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, for this. This has been fantastic. Uh, if you can all join me in thanking them. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.